Mindfulness Mode 506. I got to the part where I was talking about her last words where she had me on her mind and I had to stop. Hey, welcome to Mindfulness Mode. I'm Bruce Langford, your Mindfulness Mode host. Hey, I have a free resource for you. It's called 10 Simple and Effective Ways to Increase Mindfulness in the Workplace Now. So whether you are an employee or whether you have employees, well, you can download this resource and I think it'll help you. Go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash workplace P standing for workplace productivity. Now sit back, relax and enjoy today's episode. Hey, Mindful Tribe, how many of you are into Hollywood? How many of you are into painting? How many of you just love to read a terrific book? Well, I have the guy right here. He's an author, he's a painter, he's done so many things in his life. I have Gregory Coplow here today. Hey, Greg, are you in mindfulness mode today? I am always in mindfulness mode, Bruce. Thanks for asking. <laughs> That's good. Greg Coplow is a poet. He's a, an artist and he's an accredited life coach as well. He's a four-time American Art Award winner and a graduate of UCLA in theater arts. And his work in Hollywood has spanned two decades. And man, he had some fascinating jobs. You'll, you'll read about them in his terrific book. And he is now involved in something called Paint Night. And he's a very accomplished artist, and he's an avid believer in living in the present moment. So that's what brings Gregory right here to mindfulness mode, because, well, Gregory is a very mindful kind of guy. And you'll find that out when you read his book as well. And his book, I've got it right here. It's called The Art of Being Whole. And it looks like this, if you're watching the video, The Art of Being Whole. And the subtitle is A Personal Account of Grit, Love, and Fearless Living. And he's done a lot of that. So let's get started. What's your idea about mindfulness? What is your definition of mindfulness, Gregory? You know, mindfulness, you know, it goes really deep. I think a lot of people talk about awareness, you know, as being mindful. And I think that it goes beyond to, the ripple effect of, of what we're doing on our journey and how we affect other people. Are we making their lives better? Are we making our lives better? Are we growing? Are we changing? You know, are we, are we flatlining? And so being mindful is, is being aware of, of everything all the time, meaning everything like, uh, is a woman having a problem putting chicken in her cart over to the left and maybe I can help her. It, am I parking in the right parking space correctly so that I'm not impeding another person from getting into the space? Am I not blocking the aisle with my cart? It's every move. It's things that I say that I articulate with my prose and, and, and how I speak, my body language. All of this has a ripple effect into the life in the universe out there. And so for me, it's, it's a constant state of, of watching all of those things and ensuring that I'm making people's lives just a little bit better. And I think for me, that's that's really what mindfulness is for me. Well, I think that you made my life better just by reading your book. I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, but I really did. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, because not everybody knows how to articulate their story and then end it the way you did with a, a great epilogue about, well, you ended with, we are not human beings 
having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. But you really brought us to that point in the book. You taught us so many lessons, starting with a very tough childhood that you endured. And, you know, man, you said, well, I'll spare you the details. I'll just tell you a few things. (laughs) And you did. You just told us a few things about your childhood. But what made your childhood so tough? Why don't you tell us a little bit about that first? Well, you know, my mom was, you know, later on was diagnosed as a schizophrenic, but, but going through the process and, and certainly during the age that, that I was a child, you know, mental illness was not something that, you know, people really talked about, discussed. Medication wasn't something that, you know, people handed out either. Um, and so I, you know, went through a journey with my mom on the good days and the bad days. She also, she had uh, several back surgeries. So she was addicted to opiates. Um, and, you know, in, in constant pain. And uh, it was, you know, really, really difficult. You know, I was always searching for that validation and that love from my mom. And I think that's sort of what got me to that overachiever mentality is that I just felt like, you know, I wasn't good enough. I would come home and I would win awards and things. And my mom would say, well, you know, did, you know I come home with a big trophy and she'd say, well, you know, did they give you money or do you mm-hmm. have a scholarship towards college or like, you know, this is meaningless. So I was just really constantly striving for, you know, that love. And it, it was very abusive. I mean, I would be woken up at three o'clock in the morning to, you know, clean the bathtub and, you know, really unsure why. And so I didn't feel safe. I didn't really sleep very well. It was a constant, you had to be awake almost all the time for my own safety. So it was a little daunting and, and scary. And it was only through the validation of like school and doing well in school And also seeing my friend's parents realizing that I had a sick parent and I had enough awareness and enough intelligence to realize that um, I had a sick parent, but it didn't change, you know, really didn't change my love for her. And I I still love her deeply and dearly. And I understand that she was limited through the body shell and that as a spirit, you know, she can come back to her true authentic self. Right. My take from the book was that you felt like she really truly didn't want the best for you or that she didn't really look out for you. And she didn't tell you that, Hey, you could go to UCLA or you could go to some of these state colleges and it would be paid for. And she held that back. Is that still how you feel that she just held that back? I think there was some sabotage. I think there was some jealousy. I think, you know, my mom wanted to be bigger than she was. And I think she saw me going in that direction. And I think in some ways, little pieces of it killed her watching me sort of spread my wings and fly was a torture in a sense for her. So, so when she died, yeah. let's talk about the hurt. Yeah. Why did it hurt so much? How did you move through that? Well, first I didn't get to properly say goodbye. Uh, and so those amends were made afterwards through dream and through connecting with spirit. My stepdad was not in mindfulness mode. And he was not aware that he needed to give people an opportunity to say goodbye. And so he, he called me, I was in the middle of a paint night event and I actually had to continue with the event and do it while my mom was passing away. He didn't give me enough time to fly there and to say goodbye. So I basically did it over the phone. Did you see her a lot in your adult life? Did you go back and visit her a lot? No, I I didn't actually took long breaks trying, I was hoping that she would find some more wellness. I felt like the relationship was so dysfunctional 
there was nothing to seek or to be involved in until, you know, until she got that wellness. And so I didn't see her a lot. And so there were a lot of spaces missing, but I did, you know, I did tell her and show her my love, you know, and, and through my childhood, even through all of the stuff that was happening, I was the guy that would come home with flowers. I'd pick flowers on my way home from school for her. I would, when you'd make a clay project or an art project was always for her. And it would say like Miss America on a little Valentine's heart or whatever. She was, she was my everything. She really was. And yeah, um, it, as a reader, it really hurt when she died and you yeah. didn't have a chance to, to say oh, yeah. goodbye to her. Uh, what was the hardest thing that you included in this book? What was the hardest part of it to write? That was really difficult. I, I'd say my mom's section was probably the hardest. When I read it, when I read the audiobook, I got to the part where I was talking about her last words were she had me on her mind and I had to stop. I mean, I started crying. It, they kept some of the emotion in the book, which was great, but I literally, I, I couldn't move forward. You know, I was still digesting that, you know, that this actually happened, that I really didn't get to say goodbye and, and create some sense of peace and semblance and give this person who was so tortured, give them, you know, love. I know my stepdad didn't give her that. And I know she died without that. And no one should, no one should die like that. So there's, it's complicated. There's a lot going on in there. Um, and I had a lot to offer, but didn't have the time to be able to offer that. And so I had to do it after, after she passed. You know, I wasn't able to do it here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gregory, what was an important part of your life that you did not include in the book? There was, uh, there was a, a, a section uh, on where I had AFib. AFib is atrial fibrillation where your heart kind of um, goes into a 220 beats per minute. I didn't include that section in the book, but there was a really valuable lesson um, within that journey of, you know, never being sick, never going to an emergency room, and then being told that, um, you know, my heart stopped when it converted back and that I would need a pacemaker and that this would occur again and that I would live with this the rest of my life. And then there would be scar tissue that would build up and eventually there'd be this chronic condition. It was just so dismal and so dark. And I just, I, I couldn't digest or, or, or even feel that. I just, it didn't make sense to me. I thought, I'm in good shape. This happened once, you know, why all this darkness, why all these things? The medical profession is by the book, so they don't understand when these unique little synapses kind of jump in and happen. They don't understand um, that the body is really complex and it's beautifully designed to protect itself and to make it work. And it doesn't always go by the book. So when my heart stopped to convert back to sinus rhythm because it was getting tired, it was like 16 hours of 220 beats. It literally stopped for seven seconds and rebooted and was completely normal. And by the way, never happened again. Uh, the, the heart didn't stop again. And so for a year I lived in, in constant fear of, um, you know, is, is my heart going to stop just like on the freeway or driving? They're like, please don't drive for six months and, and take a baby aspirin. They, they just, they instilled so much fear and so much anxiety. And it was all, not the truth, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I would say, you know, again, mindfulness is that awareness of understanding what that truth is and listening to that, even when someone else is telling you something completely opposite and vastly different. And so that wasn't in my book, 
But the lesson there was, you know, be aware, listen to yourself and take action to protect yourself. Maybe when someone doesn't care enough to do that for you. I wasn't unsure whether I was taking the right step or not, but it felt right. It made sense that my heart rebooted. It made sense that it never happened again. It made sense that it was tired. It all made sense. And then I got validation later from um, another female cardiologist who was totally on my side, who was not dark. And she said, this does make sense to me. I am going to, in the future, expand my practice to understand that there are idiosyncrasies that are going to happen and that these are okay too. And it's part of my practice to understand that and to and to move forward and to learn from that and be a better practitioner, right? So the other right. guy, super dark. I mean, just yeah. like Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker in female form. You know, it was it was like <laughs> that. You know, the yeah. guy was just. I mean, my life was over, according yeah. to. Him. And I actually had to sign myself out. I I was in. I they put me in ICU and they were going to do the surgery and they, they I didn't eat. I, I signed myself out. And literally, a friend came to pick me up. She said I looked like I was escaping from you know a loony bin or something. You know, I was just so like my eyes. Yeah, it was really intense. Um, I left some stuff out because obviously I'm working on a sequel called uh, Beautifully Broken, Sublimely Whole. And so there are some other stories I want to bring into that book. And then I'm going to bring in, I think, other people's stories also. Into ah, that, interesting. Into that book. Well, you're a good storyteller. Oh, thank you. Thank and you. I loved hearing about, you know, the different jobs you had and you, you, created some great friendships and it, you know, certain people that you really resonated, you told about how close you became and so on. But I, oh, and I loved your story about Upper Deck when you worked there and, you know, you weren't really the sports guy, you were more the Hollywood guy. And I could really resonate with that because I'm not a sports guy either. (laughs) And uh, so I I could really resonate with that. But, you know, I got to the end of the book and I thought, well, Gregory didn't really elaborate on any personal relationships, any close personal relationships in your life. Was that deliberate? You know, I mean, there, there were, there were a couple. I mean, Linda was, Linda was pretty close and, and Darlene, I mean, that whole special services of working in the disabled services, that was when I started growing and I started understanding that, um, you know, people were spirits and that they, they were phenomenal living with the blind roommates and all of that. Linda was a key component of my biggest relationship through college. I didn't go through, um, any more relationships because I wanted to leave a section a section in the new book called broken in relationship and, okay. how, and how we heal from that. So I'm going to go more into that later on into, into the sequel. I wanted to, in the first book, I wanted to touch on some things and I wanted to, um, you know, for, for people to, to identify with, you know, being laid off the simplicities of, of my life, of their life being synonymous and, and synchronous, you know, that we've all kind of experienced these things through the pummeling and being beaten down, the encasement opens and the light, you know, breaks through. So it didn't have a place in this book. And I did go over it time and again. Um, the Linda scenario though, you know, greeting her again in modern day and her, you know, telling me, you know, I, you know, why didn't you marry? And she says, you know, no one wanted to dance with me in the rain. Yeah. Because of that scene in the Bel Air Hotel where we actually right. danced in the rain together. Yeah. That was pretty big. <laughs> that was. Uh, that, that was a big moment. I, I, you know, there were a lot of tears there that, you know, 
and the ripple effect, like I'm, I'm feeling that and we've got to, we've got to break out of this somehow. And I can't take total responsibility for that. But at the same time, I do understand that it is a unique experience to find a guy that would dance with you in the rain like that. Not to say that there isn't someone else that would, but I, I understood where she was coming from, but it was like a daggers went. Yeah. yeah. I can believe it. It came across. It came. Yeah. Through on your yeah. Book. So that yeah. was an important, that was an important piece slice of, of my life for sure. Now you use a word in the subtitle. We don't hear all the time. We don't use it all the time. Grit. Where did you get your grit and what does grit mean to you? Grit means getting back up when we're down on that, in that dark bottom part, that abyss, and we don't, can't see the light at that moment. And we have a glimmer of hope within us that that light still exists. And we get up and we start to see it and we start to believe and we don't give up believing because if we didn't believe that grit turns into suicide. Yeah. It, 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 we just, we don't make it. And so there's, there's love that lives in there and there's a belief system that lives in there and there's a responsibility and friendships that all of that stuff comes in there in that dark place. And it says in a loud voice, get up. And it's a great place to be in. I think because I would have never made the decisions. I, I, I have to start paint night. I had nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. I had sold all my stuff during the recession. So it was like, it was, I could make any decision I wanted because I was at the bottom. I was surprised when you decided to get involved in paint night because you had done so much, like such a dazzling lifestyle and, you know, doing so, so many great things in Hollywood. And then, uh, but paint night was perfect for you. That sounded like it was just absolutely perfect. And then you started painting and you've painted so many beautiful, beautiful pictures of women. Why did you decide to paint so many pictures of women? You know, I love the, I love the Renaissance and, and even my sculpture, I just find women to be a more sensual, I don't know, product to, to, to paint. For me, I also like the, I, I like the jewelry. I like the, the finery. There's something about the dresses and, and it's just such a huge statement that they make. And there's a lot more that I can do with it. I just feel very aligned to that kind of old Modigliani style. And there are all these, you know, amazing, unusual, you know, women. I don't know. I really don't know where they come from, but I yeah. do notice too, a lot of people, they, I have, I'm an antique collector as well. And, you know, I have a lot of nudes and just marble and just women everywhere, you know, and yeah. there's really no male, you know, no male figure. Mm. Yeah. Well, can I share your uh, Facebook page, Gregory's, like oh, the yeah. artwork one? Sure. Yeah. Mindful Tribe, you've got to check this out. This is awesome. Gregory's artwork in oil. So go on Facebook and check it out. But also his website, GregoryCoplo.com. And that's G-R-E-G-O-R-Y. And Coplo is C-O-P-P-L-O-E, GregoryCoplo.com. And yeah, you check out the Facebook page because he's a wonderful artist. And it sounded like you had never done any painting and then you just suddenly decided to. But yet your father was a painter, right? Yeah. So when my dad passed away, uh, you know, I wanted to honor him. And so I picked up a brush and it was, it was like love at first sight. 
It was also the thing that saved me during 9-11, the recession. Um, it allowed me to get off the planet, get out of my head for a while and create. And it really- And you just did it. You just did it. Did you ever no. have any lessons at all? No, no. I, never, wow. I never did. And I'll tell you, I was terrible. Um, I was really, really terrible. Uh, and I, you know, I, I didn't have those tips and tools and, and technique. And so I had to learn them all on my own. And so, you know, 20 years later, you know, I started to get decent and I started, people wanted to see my work. They wanted me to show at galleries and things. I started selling work. Um, and I'd say now, probably today, you know, 25, 30 years later, um, well, not quite that much, like 20 years later, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like I can capture, you know, the things that I really want to see. I have a, a large painting of a, a woman with a, you know, one of those big ruffles. She's like Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw that. Yeah. I, I saw one of them anyway. I saw one yeah, on, she's, on your page. She's five feet tall and I've been working on her for about a year. Oh wow! And, and last night I was having a glass of wine and I had a candle under her and I cannot tell you the joy that I experienced knowing that I have something in my home that I created that I know no one else has unless they spent $3 million on it or you know, something <laughs> like, like Alan, Paul Allen's collection. Maybe, um, yeah. maybe he has one, but I, the joy that you get, I, it's inexplicable last night, especially I, I looked at her and I thought, I don't want to change you. There's nothing to fix. It was complete pleasure. And I just stared at her and I thought, I gave birth to you. <laughs> like, yeah, you, you definitely didn't, did. You didn't exist before and now, and now you do. And I, I just, I was, yeah, it was really a cool moment last night. Yeah. Yeah. I can believe that. And so getting involved in, in uh, paint night, that sounded like you absolutely loved it. And now I read that you have like over a hundred events a month yes. in Seattle. Yes. Yes. So it's a two hour event where a master artist walks you through a painting and then you take home your masterpiece and it's, you know, in restaurants all across Seattle, all the way to Olympia and Bellingham. And yeah. So I started with just me doing four mm-hmm. events a week, performing and doing the whole thing. And I hired one artist after another and it grew. And I think the difference with paint night, the way we run it or the way I run it is that, um, you know, there's a spiritual component and an art therapy component. So when you're painting your canvas black and you hear gasp and, you know, in the audience, you don't just let them gasp. You say, Hey, you guys, you know, are you feeling some fear and anxiety regarding painting the canvas black? And why is that? What does that mean? What handcuffs us to be in a space? And so then I, I go off and it becomes like a little therapy sessions. So they get little nuggets of spiritual awareness and advice, little, little things, um, through walking them through a painting and all the entire team does this. And so everyone was handpicked, handpicked. They all have, you know, nice spiritual, um, components to themselves. And, you know, it was important during the interview process that I find people that were mindful, right? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we do infuse that element into the events. And I think that's why it's been so successful. And I'm so grateful because I started, you know, on unemployment and I had no money. I was selling everything. And, you know, you just keep believing everyone, keep believing because um, that's what makes it all happen and be curious, you know, open doors, try new things. You never know. I was so egotistical about this interview. I didn't want to go because they were giving away free drink tickets. And I thought, you know, I, I worked in Hollywood and this is just, you know, and this literally, I got this voice that said, 
go to the interview. If you're not happy and you don't like it, there's an exit door right on the other side. So you walk through the opening and you walk through the exit. Like, what is your problem? Like you're, you're sabotaging yourself. Does this sound familiar? And I went back to my childhood and all of this came full circle. And I'm like, wow, why do I feel that I'm better that, that I can't go to this interview? That's that it, it disgusted me. And I went and it was great. And the owner was there and like a great connection it was meant to be. But to think that I almost didn't go. Yeah. Ego. Ego. Yeah. Ego doesn't belong in, a, in mindfulness mode. I can no, no, it definitely doesn't. No, no, it doesn't. And then you had to go home and paint some landscapes. Yeah, there was no library. I started right at the beginning. And so, um, well, first they didn't want to accept me because I was a portrait artist. And like, oh, right. but a lot of my portraits had landscapes behind them, like the old style. And they didn't see that. And so I whipped out a bunch of landscapes and, and they, you know, they liked them or whatever, but yeah, I had to create all my own paintings and then teach my own paintings. And, you know, I have a 500 painting library now, just, just my paintings for painting. Wow. Yeah. So I painted a lot and I wasn't used to acrylic because I painted in oil and acrylic doesn't blend that way. It dries. And so I'm, I'm like, you know, it took me a while to get used to it. But. Yeah. And so do you still do the paint nights yourself sometimes? You know, I do the private, some of the private events like the Amazons and some of the bigger ones, or if we have one with 75 people, I will work with my artists. My artists will run it and I'll have them introduce me as their assistant uh-huh. and, and I'll get to do a little bit. So I do like to, to go out there and do it, but I don't actually run one regularly on a regular basis. I did it for two years. And I think I got burnout kind of performing mm-hmm. and it's nice just to, cause there's a lot on the back end of the business and scheduling and loading up the calendar and the paintings and dealing with the venues. And I would do that all day and then I would go perform at night. Yeah. And so I, I needed a little bit of a break and I also wanted to write books and do other things. I had other Sure. Things. How many artists do you have who do the, do this for you? I have six. Oh, you have six. Yeah. I have six. Okay. And they do about four to five events a week. All of them. Right. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. Cool. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. That's yeah. really cool. But it's only in Seattle, right? Seattle, Seattle no, area. No, it's global. So oh. uh, for me, I'm the licensee for this area, but it is a global corporation. Oh yeah, no, I realized that. But yeah, yours are only yeah. in Seattle. Yeah, Windsor, Seattle, Olympia, and Bellingham. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You got yeah, it. Gregory, uh, I always ask a question about bullying. Have you ever been bullied or do you have a story about bullying where, you know, mindfulness would have made a difference? <laughs> Boy, <laughs> bullied. I was nothing but bullied all through school. I couldn't wait to get out of high school, actually. And when I got to college, I was finally accepted for my unique being through school. You know, I, you know, I like the more less macho sports. I don't know. I, I can't even, it seems weird to even say that tennis, gymnastics, swimming. Um, and I was teased all the time called gay and fag. And, uh, just cause I was different. You know, I would take the, the, the test in school. I would do the answer sheet in red pen while the other kids were taking the test. And so a lot of them didn't like me, you know, what, why is that guy sitting over there? Why is he different? Is he better than us? And so I was teased and ridiculed and bullied my hair pulled, you know, beaten. I mean, you, you name it. I felt less than all the way through school, but the adults, the adults were always like, you know, you're a star, you're on the right track. We believe in you. You're doing good stuff. You're going to go to college and, and don't worry about these people. 
And it wasn't that I was worried about the people. It was that I was pretty miserable all the time. And so my socialization was very, very small all through school. Um, yeah. Mindfulness. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, parents, you know, taught their kids to do this. The, the guys were like, yeah, look at my son. He's strong. He can stand on his own. You know, look, you look at what he's doing. And it was completely the opposite. That guy's the weak guy. Exactly. And the guy who's really strong is, is me. You know, the guy that, you know, yeah. is, is putting up with and tolerating all of this. I think that's changing now. I think um, the mindfulness in parents, hopefully some of them, not all of them, you know, it's, it's changing now. I think the faculty too, the teachers are becoming obviously more aware of it. But even during my time, some of the faculty thought that, oh, it's just what kids do. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was low. And then my home life, I mean, I thought many times about, you know, maybe I should just check out. You know, I, I didn't know how to do that when it kind of scared me. There was also this seed of excitement of, yeah, but you're not going to know who you're going to become. Like, are you excited to know who you're going to become? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of am like, this is temporary. Like, you're going to get through this and you're going to go off and you're going to become something. And, and that, that really kept me going. I thought, and I just turned, you know, a blind eye. I was really in physically strong shape though, from gymnastics and swimming, though, that when I did get in a fight and it was just terrible and I, I didn't want to fight back, but I was at a point where, like I said, my hair was being pulled and I was being hit, you know. I hit the guy so hardy, you know, just laid on the ground. And I thought wow. I killed, I thought I killed him. You know, it was just this is not a situation. I was a really gentle soul. It's not a situation yeah. I, I wanted to be in and to feel forced to protect myself so that I wouldn't get hurt. That shouldn't happen to anyone. And no one should feel that they want to check out or leave the planet when they're eight years old. Exactly. But it didn't stop through and I got hit on also by some of my teachers, like in third grade would take me for rides in their car and weird stuff. Oh yeah. That yeah. is weird. Weird stuff. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, as we move forward in the interview, Greg, I want to ask you five quick answer questions, if that's okay. And the first one is this, uh, who is one person that has influenced mindfulness in your life? Eckhart Tolle and mm. his power of now book was the first time where I thought, Oh, being present, like is a real thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that book and the secret too, both of them were like kind of big, like my thoughts, my words are things like I always knew that my words were powerful, that ripple effect thing. But I think those two were, were really big in my life. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? You know, I feel freer to express myself without judgment and critique, which I think is really a cool thing. You know, I was taught as a child, you know, not to cry and not really to express emotion. I'm realizing that the beauty of being human is to be full and to express yourself fully. And so, you know, I do that. That's, I think, through mindfulness, definitely. Let's talk about breathing. How is breathing part of your mindfulness practice? Breathing is part of my meditation practice. Um, it also can create in some people, I want to be clear about this, some anxiety when people get in touch with their breathing, they can uh, feel like they're they're not safe or they're not getting enough air, and so that doesn't always work for for everybody. But I do. Um, I concentrate on breathing when I meditate. I also concentrate on you know the the hippocampus and the hypothalamus secrete all these beautiful things to cleanse your body when you meditate. And so I picture my body, you know, being cleansed and healing. 
when I'm, oh. when I'm, when I'm meditating, I feel the secretion from the brain and I picture it going through my body and, and knowing that when I get up, I'm going to be more whole and, and feel better physically and, and mentally. But breathing gets me started into a focal point, into a present moment of just feeling the air coming through my nostrils and trying to get in touch with the tingling and certain, certain sensations so that I can stay present. Because just breathing alone, I'm going to bounce. I'm going to go to different places all the time and, and come back. So the more intense I am about the feeling of it going through my nose and that sensation, the better my focal point in my meditation. You already mentioned a couple of books, The Secret and The Power of Now. Yes. Are there any apps that you would recommend that can help with mindfulness? You know, I mean, I'm mindful all the time, right? So I don't, I don't personally feel that I need to be reminded because it's a constant thing every moment. I do enjoy, I mean, along with your podcast, of course, Oprah's Super Soul podcast Yes, is a really, really beautiful podcast and will teach you and show you mindfulness on a really big scale with all kinds of people. It's nice to see celebrities that we think have it all and, and how they use mindfulness. And then the people that, you know, have been broken, that were incarcerated wrongfully and all of these things and how they have found hope and, and, and mindfulness. And so I do, um, I do enjoy her podcast and she does a special 10 series on Eckhart Tolle's book, the new earth awakening. Yes. So they go chapter by chapter because it, it can get tedious, <laughs> you know, that it can get really, so by breaking it up chapter by chapter and having him there makes it easier to digest, I think, because it can be yeah. really kind of like, whoa, it's a lot to, to digest. So what's your meditation like, your meditation practice? So I when did it start? Yeah. So, you know, strangely enough, my mom was really into it and she took me at seven years old to a transcendental meditation place. Now, now it was kind of hip and trendy and my mom liked to be, you know, kind of hip and trendy. So, um, but I remember getting a mantra from a yogi and I had, I brought fruit like a banana and a pear. And, um, and I started meditating then and I didn't understand what mantra was and I didn't understand why I was using it, but I did feel a sense of peace. They left me in a room for like an hour and I stayed there mm. just, and I didn't have those frightening thoughts of I was in danger, um, which was new for me. So I thought, well, if I meditate, you know, I won't feel in danger. So I'm going to do that. So that helped too, to kind of save me. I think all these tools, you know, save me. So do you meditate every day now? I do an hour a day. I do around two, three o'clock. I do for an hour. I have to every day. Right. That keeps you grounded. It it not only keeps me grounded, it heals my body, but it also gives me through the stillness, we get those messages. And I think that for me, that's the utter stillness in which I can be used as a vessel to receive a bigger message. And so I, I listen for those. It's my hour to say, be quiet and be still and listen for something that might be coming in. And I do get messages. Sometimes I'll get a dream, like a little dream sequence will come in and I'll be like, you know, what's that? But, you know, I'll process it. I'll look at it. And I'm like, Hmm, maybe it means this. So I'll get some inspiration sometimes. It doesn't happen all the time, but there are messages that come through. I think stillness and being quiet is, is super important for, for all of us to practice. Yeah, I love the messages you shared in your book and they're loud and clear and very well articulated. Gregory Coplo.com, Mindful Tribe. Check out the website, G-R-E-G-O-R-Y, 
C-O-P-P-L-O-E. And of course, you can find him on Facebook as well at Gregory's Artwork and Oil and also Transformative Life Coach. You've got a, a Facebook presence there as well, don't you? I do. Yeah. So the GregoryCoppola.com I do on Facebook and then the GregoryCoppola.com highlights the art of being whole where you can purchase it. And then it talks about uh, my signature process and the mindfulness pathway towards transformation and what that means. And, and, and all that. Well, I definitely recommend your book. I enjoyed you. reading Thank every so single bit of it. Wow. It was very, very good. And uh, I just didn't want to put it down. It was enjoyable and and so on but do you have any last words for mindful tribe before we conclude you know you have one journey and i would say be fearless with your adventure because you know this is it and this is your one chance your one opportunity to to do some good in the world to to make life a little bit better before you depart and so let's all work on doing that let's all work on making this place better Great advice, Gregory. Well, you have a great rest of your day. Thanks for being on Mindfulness Mode. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Bruce. I appreciate it. All the best. Bye now. Hey, do you work in corporate or do you have a team of employees? Here's how you can reduce stress and increase happiness, productivity, and profitability in the workplace. Download this free resource. It's called 10 simple and effective ways to increase mindfulness in the workplace now. Once your employees are happier, productivity will increase. And you can download this resource for free right here at mindfulnessmode.com forward slash workplace P with the P standing for productivity.